This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. and answers, or we're looking for answers uh, about some of the geopolitical things going on around the world. Of course, today, North Korea reportedly firing another ballistic missile, and then the U.K. and European Union reaching an agreement on a Brexit divorce bill. Uh, Just another day in our increasingly changing geopolitical world. Let's talk about this. What does it mean for the investment environment? Peter Cheer back with us, head of macro strategy at Academy Securities, based in Connecticut, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio here in New York. Also with us, retired Major General Mastin Robison, and uh, he's a geopolitical intelligence advisor to the Academy uh, Securities Advisory Board, also in our New York studio. Welcome. Nice to have you both back. Thanks, Carol. Nice to have Peter back. Um, There is so much going on in the world, and it it fascinates us on a daily basis that uh, stuff goes on that you think would rattle investors, rattle the markets, and it doesn't. Let's start with something like North Korea. This isn't the first uh, missile they've launched, uh, about a dozen or so. Um, General Robertson, let me start with you. Uh, How do you read these things? Well, I, I mean, the reality is the status quo. I mean, there's been friction with North Korea for the last two decades. It's just a function of uh, the chatter has been much more visceral of light. Um, you know, what what happened recently with the, the latest launch, I think it's too early to really say what that is until the intelligence is, is a little more solid on <clears throat> kind of how they did it, where they did it, and where it was aimed at. When you When you are looking into the intelligence, what is it that you want to know? that says, okay, it's just chatter, okay, or it's something more significant. Well, you're always looking for intent. Yeah. I mean, what, what are they trying to accomplish and what's next? So uh, why do you think the rhetoric is ticked up here? What, what's, what's going on? Obviously, obviously, we've got a different president who's got a different approach when it comes to rhetoric, understatement. Um, but the response on the other side has been, has been uh, dramatic. Well, Kim's certainly the one that's, that's ratcheted up the rhetoric in – uh, and more than work. Yeah, yeah, in actuality, by by doing what he's done. And I think so. This markets, isn't just talk anymore. What you're starting to see, though, is the markets are really becoming, you know, immune to it to some degree. Yeah. When it re- really first heated up back in August, mm-hmm. we had a lot of volatility in the markets. There were large moves. You know, today even we saw you know stocks basically give up part of their gains, and they've rebounded right back. Treasuries, you know, rallied a little bit. They've given it all back. So I think, for better or for worse, we become used to this more escalated. Status quo. I always wonder about the kind of conversations that you guys would have at an investment firm. Here you are, Peter. Of course, you come from an investment background. Um, General Robinson, you come from a political, not a political, a more, you know, a, a, a military background. And I'm just always curious about the kind of debates and discussions that go on on uh-huh. issues like this. What is it? What is it like? It's been fun. It's very exciting because <laughs> we actually have, you know, with the general and a couple of the other generals and admirals, we have an advisory board now of 12 people that we can lean on and ask questions who've had the experience on the ground. So I think we can get better intelligence, which then lets us as a new market strategist translate that better to how investors should be reacting or not reacting. And I think it's helped a lot. I think one thing that's been surprising both to me since I joined in the past two months, but I think we it's a very you know diligent crowd of people who I think, you know, escalation is the last choice and i think you get through this and you wind up being able to avoid you know i think very early on we agreed with 
uh, General Kelly when he called North Korea manageable. We walked our clients through that. And I right. think that's what we'll continue to do even in the Mideast is be there as a resource, be there as a sounding board, and hopefully you know, frame this in a better way. Because, General Robinson, what do we often get wrong as investors as we try to interpret geopolitical events? Our reaction. <clears throat> Over, think, overreaction. Overreaction. I think that's uh, sort of what you see here is where it's been uh, – the more it's drawn out, the more callous you become to the fact that not it's real and not that it's not dangerous, but it's no longer an immediate spike that causes a, a, an overreaction. Uh, you, you're, I mean, it becomes what you're living with. So, I mean, Japan, China, uh, you know, the Pacific Rim is living with this and have been now for months. And so at some point, it, it's just like a combat zone. It's just like, you know, when anything else that is potential that occurs, you have to come back to a norm at some point, And that's what the market does. And so I think un- unless there's, there's a, a new spike that gives us reason to say, this is being taken to the next level, not just the sort of protracted uh, threat that is really what we're dealing with now, then I think you have no choice but to move back to a new norm. We lost some service members uh, in Africa recently. And uh, uh, I think a lot of people were shocked, including Congress, seemed to be shocked how many troops were in Africa right now. Um, It's an area I think that probably does not get as much attention as it deserves. What's your thoughts on on what's going on with the fight against uh, uh, you know, you know, against uh, ISIS and beyond in Africa. Al-Qaeda um, elements as well. It, it, the problem with ICE is there's a growing number of partner, uh, partnering fanatical groups. So it's not just uh, the Islamic State, but it's all the fringe, fringe groups that are also uh, consistently and increasingly becoming uh, partners in it. And that's what you see going on in the Philippines, what you see going on in Africa, you know, Boko Haram, uh, the uh, AQIM. Mm-hmm. Al-Shabaab. Um, so it, it, the core of it is really uh, an economic issue. Uh, it's, a, it's a quality of life issue. Um, it's a... It's an economic um, issue where you've got drought in certain issue. areas. You've got mass amounts of people moving from border to border. It's causing disruptions in those countries are going to and the countries are leaving. Uh, true. But, but, but really what causes it, and it, I mean, this is not new. It's been going on for decades where you have frontier areas... Uh, in every uh, country national borders that the capital doesn't really control. And those areas are prone to really have associations across the border that are stronger than, than associations to their capital. So it's fraught with a, a natural friction that's there that until there's an economic rule of law, you know, good governance solution to it, it will continue to bubble. So what the military does is goes in and works with the host nation military to try to help them understand you are now a democratic republic uh, based on the Constitution, arguably no longer a colony where your your role is to, in essence, suppress the population to protect the the ruling party. Your job now is to protect the population. So that's a transition in their thought process that requires police, military, government officials coming together and understanding that better. And that's why you see an increase in military people there trying to help with that, that discussion, that rhetoric. We've just got about 50 seconds or maybe a minute left here. Russia, mm-hmm. What's, what do you tell investors or what are the discussions that you think we should be having as investors when it comes to Russia specifically? Boy, that's a tough one because no, uh, I think we well, talk- uh, they're, they're in, their increased uh, play in the oil market, I think, is going to be – you know, really interesting to see how that plays out this winter. It's pretty significant, though. Yeah. And oh, it's very really calling the shots. Yeah, but I mean, so it it 
the battle really is between they and Saudi, and you know who is going to who's going to run OPEC and who's going to set the mar- the price and who's going to set the market and how's it going to go and what's the timing going to be. Um, and, and we've been through this before, uh, where yeah. where prices spike and prices come down, and you know it's it's a volatile thing. We got to run, but really enjoyed this and enjoyed your perspective. Thank you, both of you. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Yeah, Peter Chi, head of Macro Strategy at Academy of Securities, and of course, Major General Robison. He's a geopolitical intellectual, geopolitical intelligence advisor at Academy Securities Advisory Board, right here on Bloomberg Radio. Well, SoftBank and a group of investors trying to hitch a ride and actually buy a stake in Uber, but at a sizable discount to the company's valuation. This story at Bloomberg Exclusive, our Eric Newcomer got the story. He is our startup reporter at Bloomberg News. He joins us in our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. I was here working uh, in the evening, and your story broke uh, last night. Tell us a little bit about what's going on here, because we expected SoftBank to make some kind of investment, right? Right. This has been a long, drawn-out process for sure. So finally, sometime today, and I'm, I'm waiting on it, uh, Uber and SoftBank are going to launch this tender process where they reach out to Uber's investors and see if they want to let SoftBank buy some of their shares. So what we reported yesterday, SoftBank is going to price those shares around $33, which translates into a $48 billion valuation for the, second, for the company based on that price which would mean that the company's valuation falls 30% from the $69 billion valuation it currently holds today. Okay, so I've got a theory about this based on no facts, which like all theories. <laughs> all right, um, I'm ready. So I think what's going on here is what we've seen with other companies, which is that the prior rounds of investment, uh, the last ones to give it the $69 billion valuation, probably had a ratchet, which is to say they were guaranteed that if the company issued shares at a lower valuation – they would get more shares given to them as if they had invested at a lower valuation. So it's, it's, it's called a reset or a ratchet, and it's not uncommon in late rounds of venture capital. So I think that the reason they might have done a billion dollars at a high price, simultaneous to acquiring uh, $6 billion worth of shares at a much lower price, is because the company couldn't offer a lower price, even a blended price, to uh, a new investor because it would have triggered the ratchet in those late rounds of investment they received uh, in the prior round or the round before that, maybe. I, I need to go and actually figure out, because you've asked me this before. I'm going to go, I am going to commit to you to get an answer to that question. Uh, I do think either way, the, the, you know, part of this deal, SoftBank is making a $1 billion plus direct investment in Uber at the $69 billion valuation. To, at, at the, a minimum, it's to keep the optics and to keep uh, existing investors happy that Uber is maintaining its valuation, at least on paper. As if the existing investors can't see that. Yeah, I know, <laughs> know. I know, I know. So, I mean, if there is a more sort of technical, financial reason that this needs to happen, uh, it's something I should look into more. I can't say definitively. Wait, wait. Can I just... I still like the the valuation. General Motors is a $63 billion company. Uber was a $69 billion valuation, now at $48 billion. Does any of that really make sense? You know, um, they're they're betting that this is you know the next Facebook, the next transformative technology company, and certainly they're paying a premium. Um, I mean, this is a company that lost three billion dollars uh, last year, so certainly investors are betting in sort of future financial performance, and whether that's logical or not, we'll take a 
sort of a long amount of time. I also want to say, you know, this $48 billion uh, secondary valuation is contingent on people actually agreeing to -hmm. sell at that price. You know, uh, Uber shareholders could say it's not high enough and try to wait for a higher price. And SoftBank then has the opportunity to come back with a different price. So this could be the start of the negotiation or, you know, this is where we could end up and we'll have to see sort of what the appetite is to sell at $33 a well, share. Well, and, and do we think that, that any of the venture investors are going to be the big sellers here? I mean, is Benchmark, which has had such a troubled relationship with Uber, maybe Benchmark takes some of their money off the table? It seems like, you know, some of these early investors are candidates to sell. Who exactly and how much uh, hasn't come out yet. And people are sort of being uh, pretty protective of that information because it's, you know, part of the negotiating leverage over price. So we'll see uh, where that all lands. What will this investment potentially... Did he just, well, he just gave us a time will tell answer. Yep. Well, you, yes, you're, you're ready for broadcast TV. <laughs> Stay tuned. Time will tell. So this is everything coming. Um, this investment, will it tell us anything about what's going to happen in terms of leadership at the company? I mean, this company has gone through a lot in the last year or so and a lot of scandals and so on and, uh, you know, and about Kalanick's fate. Travis Kalanick fates. I just wonder if well, it will, will. I mean, there's a whole a slate with this. Yeah. of governance reforms that limit Travis Kalanick's role at the company, expand the board, give SoftBank two board seats that are tied to this deal. So it's certainly important uh, for the deal to go through if those governance reforms are going to happen. I think SoftBank's actually taken a pretty sort of passive, at least public, stance towards what's going on in terms of Uber's leadership. I think they sort of moved in at a moment of weakness to get a good price and have sort of left Uber to figure out, you know, the new CEO and sort of how how everything's going to work. They wanted Mm -hmm. their board seats, but they've been sort of fairly passive on governance and much more active on getting a good deal for a huge amount of Uber stock. Well, let me suggest that it might not be a momentary moment of weakness. This might be the right. high point. I mean, the high point <laughs> might, have, might have sailed as of, as of that $89 billion non-89 <laughs> I mean, what, we're, what, we're, what you're really saying is that SoftBank doesn't think this business or isn't willing to pay or doesn't have to pay a $69 billion right. valuation to get involved in this deal, that they're able to come in at a, at a much lower uh, blended price, and that the, the top valuation of Uber is, Uber is much lower than it was only a few months ago. Yeah. And I mean, there's also an argument good. that SoftBank brings with it certain uh, sort of some value that could uh, command a discount. Yes, uh, Christmas. All you want for Christmas has been on sale all weekend. But are people going? Are these sales actually working on online or off? Let's talk about Black Friday and Cyber Monday and the like. Stefan Waits uh, joins us right now from Radial. It's a company that looks at the CTO up there. Uh, it looks at uh, these issues. Tell me about Cyber Monday. You know, every year it seems to be a bigger number than the previous year, just because internet shopping, internet usage is growing. Amazon's growing in its power. What, what are we seeing? Final numbers now from yesterday. 
We're seeing, depends on the retailer or the brand, we're seeing between 14 and 20% year-on-year increases from last year. So definitely an uptick uh, from what we saw in, in years past. Stephen White, so you know what's interesting about talking to you? You guys handle processing and order fulfillment for so many retailers. Uh, folks like yeah. Kate Spade, Dick Sporting uh, Goods, Toys R Us, a lot more. So you are seeing kind of the activity leading up to Black Friday, coming out of Cyber Monday. Um, you just mentioned the percentage numbers, but give me a little bit more feel about kind of where you saw the activity and what was going on? Yeah, it, it really depends. Again, the retailer, we saw a lot of uh, puffy jackets getting thrown out there, a lot of winter uh, clothing, a lot of higher price goods, actually, we're seeing move this year. So even though we saw uh, higher shipments across the board, we're actually seeing the average order value also up significantly. In some cases, the, the dollars that we actually were collecting uh, were, were up twice what the actual shipments were up telling us that people were buying pricier goods uh, over the weekend and even yesterday. Corey, you know what a puffy jacket is? It's like those big things. You'll probably never <laughs> wear one. Corey's very stylish. Uh, and you can't, put a, stylish. you can't put a pocket square in a puffy jacket. It is true. You can't. No, I've tried that. No you lose the puff. No. Um, <laughs> well, well, to that, I mean, is this a general reflection? I mean, some of the numbers I saw tossed out says this is the biggest year since 2013, uh, and that yeah. maybe – um, what we're looking at is, is a general recovery in retail spending across the board owing to low unemployment and a, and a growing economy. Well, I think we're seeing that. We're also just seeing, I think, retailers keeping sales going across the weekend. So a lot of them started on Black Friday, and then we saw some softness actually on Black Friday in our data. And then by Saturday afternoon, early Sunday, that had recovered and actually surpassed expectations. So I think what we saw at least was a lot of sales going on Black Friday. Maybe didn't get the numbers they were thinking they were going to get. They pushed those sales online into the late uh, evening hours and early Saturday. Oh, really? And that then caused the additional buying to, to pick up. And by Monday, we were ahead of all the metrics. So, yeah, that's I think you know, one thing that's so different than in years past is that because you have this online channel, you know, traditionally you put your Black Friday circulars together months ahead of time. They get printed days ahead of time, and they're out there and they're done. With online, of course, if you see demand flagging in some area, you can just push an email out instantaneously, change the banner on the website, whatever it might be, and suddenly that can goose your numbers pretty significantly. You know, how do you think retailers need to think about Amazon? Forgive me for constantly coming back, but it's hard to ignore No, that. no worries. Yeah, you know, um, it is. How do you, how do you think, you know, retailers <laughs> are going to survive or not yeah. survive in this, in this, uh, <laughs> in this environment? Well, a couple of things. First, I'd say is just focusing on the assortment that retailers have. A couple of the ones I'm looking at right now, in fact, they're, they're selling their top sellers are things that people simply can't buy on Amazon. So certain types of products, certain, uh, without getting into retailers specifically, just, just certain things that only they have access to or, or even house branded products. Those are selling very well, and that's where you see a lot of the movement in uh in, in the SKUs that I'm tracking, at least. Uh, on the other hand, too, looking at how retailers and, and even brands that have physical stores can can use those as secret weapons to move inventory. Now, one thing that we saw was ship from store, which basically means someone places an order and the actual product gets shipped from a retail store many times nearby their home, is up 50% from last year. So we're, we're seeing more retailers and brands say, hey, look, I don't want to put all the strain on the warehouses. It's hard to get labor in warehouses across the nation. Even radio, we hired 27,000 people for this holiday period to, to pick and pack our inventory. But the reality is that these retailers and brands who do have physical locations, they're able to actually leverage the inventory in those spaces, ship it from the stores, and we're seeing a lot of a move towards uh, in that direction to really uh, 
get things faster to customers, reduce the strain on the warehouse networks, and ultimately reduce costs for them as they are able to ship things uh, smaller distances. That's remarkable. Uh, does that also suggest a change in, in the behavior? Is that really just pushed by the retailer, or is, are the, the consumers also wanting something different, saying, I don't want to have to put something in my car anymore. I'm used to having it show up in my front, my front <laughs> door. Yeah, that's you, and, and certainly we're seeing that in both. There's, your retailers are saying they want to you know, obviously leverage what they have in the stores, but also we're seeing consumers want to go pick up things more often. So there's a real uh, kind of worry that as online gets bigger, as it's been getting bigger every year, and, and these, the infrastructure that we have to deliver products is also not growing as quickly as, as order volume is, uh, your ability to get things when you need them is, is being diminished. So yeah. we saw what's called in-store, in-store pickup. That's up, uh, that's up 57% from last year as people are going to the store often to pick up items versus having them shipped to their houses or shipped to their, their walk-ups and getting stolen by, uh, by somebody because uh, they aren't home to receive it. Good to have you back with us. Stefan White, Chief Technology Officer at Radial, uh, joining us uh, on the phone from King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Bitcoin is a world of wild, wild west in many ways, but in a lot of ways it's starting to be used in a very serious way for business. Someone who's as early as you could be to Bitcoin, Bill Tai, joins us right now. He was a partner at CRV, partner emeritus at uh, Charles River Ventures, now known as CRV, but longtime uh, investor uh, and, uh, and has been involved in the world of Bitcoin since all the way back in 2009. Uh, Bill Ty joins us right now from the phone uh, in Los Angeles. And Bill, um, t- I'd like to talk to you about Bitfury, which is a company that uh, is that you've been involved in uh, very early on. W- what is Bitfury? What is Bitfury trying to do in the Bitcoin world? Sure, Corey. So uh, Bitfury was formed by a, a handful of people that were mining, you know, very close to the beginning of uh, you know this era where Bitcoin was launched. There were a full, uh, number of folks that met really over the, over open source uh, communications and networks and kind of blockchain forum, and uh, they started mining together and and moved from laptops to uh, graphics cards to teaching each other how to use FPGAs and ultimately design an ASIC, and it's emerged as one of the larger Bitcoin mining operations in the world. So the company has had uh, mining operations in countries as diverse as Iceland and Finland, Republic of Georgia, Azerbaijan, Canada, uh, and turns hundreds of millions of watts of electricity in real time uh, into Bitcoin every day. So I should back up a little bit, and, and we should talk about how Bitcoins are created and why every Bitcoin is more difficult, more expensive to make than the last. Tell us, Bill. Well, so the... Yeah, the, the, the term mining is uh, it's it's modeled a little bit after how somebody would mine gold. If you think about you know finding a piece of land that has a bunch of gold under it, you know in the very beginning, uh, like out in California, for example, people could literally walk through the forest in Lake Tahoe and pick up gold nuggets off the ground. You know, very little extraction cost, but as you dig deeper and deeper, it costs more, and uh, each incremental ounce you pull out just costs more. And the way the Bitcoin protocol is designed, the uh, over time, more and more people enter, uh, adding compute power to the network, and it gets more competitive. So your costs are higher incrementally to try to to pull up, you know, bitcoins. The way the Bitcoin protocol is designed, every ten minutes, there's a block of information that gets recorded, and you hear the word blockchain. It's basically a chain of 10 minute, roughly 10 minute blocks of information. And every 
time one of those blocks is recorded, there's a reward, and the Bitcoin protocol basically hands out 12 and a half Bitcoins to one lucky miner out there. And, uh, you know, today's price, it, we're at a historic day today, it crossed $10,000 a coin. You know, 12 and a half times $10,000 is a pretty good reward every 10 minutes. But, so it, Bill, but it, it's increasingly, but every one after the next, the last is increasingly harder to mine because it's that extra 10 minutes, is what you're saying. Uh, so it's a, it's actually a function of, of how much compute power is out there. So there are actually times where the uh, the number of computers trying to mine the Bitcoin goes down. You know, it, 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 there's a correlation with the price. So, you know, as a, as a miner, you have a couple of costs. You have your, you know, kind of prior fixed costs for developing your chips and your servers and deploying them and running them. But you also have the marginal cost of electricity. And there are points in time where bit, the volatility of Bitcoin has caused the price to gap down. You know, there, there was a period where it went from 1000 to 200 And during that period, a lot of miners dropped out because their cost of extracting was higher than the reward that they were getting. And with the prices where they are today, uh, at the levels they are and rising, it's drawing more and more people in. So the the incremental cost is getting higher at the moment. What is Bitcoin ultimately going to be? We had one uh, hedge fund manager, Mike Novogratz, talking at a cryptocurrency conference today in New York. He says one of the biggest Bitcoin bulls in, in, on Wall Street says cryptocurrencies are in a massive bubble. Uh, he's starting a $500 million fund to invest in them. But sure. what will they ultimately be? Is it, I, I don't know, sometimes I have a hard time getting my head around it. Is it an asset class? Will it ultimately be a currency that replaces, I don't know, existing currencies? What? Well, so so there's a lot, there are many viewpoints on that subject. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I think, you know, Bitcoin is one of several types of cryptocurrencies. You know, right. the the bigger name ones, you know, there's Bitcoin, there's Ethereum, Ethereum and then mm-hmm. there's yeah, dozens, thousands, uh, literally, of other cryptocurrencies that that represent units of value. So you can think of every type of coin as sort of a community currency. You know, so think of uh, any brand, for example, if you have an Amazon gift card, those cards out there are representative of a community of interest or a community of customers around a brand, and those little plastic tokens, if they are physical, have value that is exchangeable through that community. Mm-hmm. And so what you see is every time there's a community like Ethereum, a giant developer's community, uh, they are willing to trust, you know, they have faith in a currency. And anything that is an exchange of value can be defined a currency. Right. I'd actually recommend people to read Neil Ferguson's book, The Ascent of Money. Great stuff. Bill Tai, uh, investor uh, in, uh, in Bitfury. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, another day, another record for stocks on Wall Street. Our next guest says 2700 for the S&P. 
it's possible by the end of the year. It is time for the drive to the close. Brad McMillan is back with us, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network, $114 billion in assets under management, with us from Waltham, Massachusetts. Uh, nice to have you here once again, Brad. Uh, 2700 Earlier, our Bloomberg Stocks columnist Dave Wilson, his chart of the day, talked about how we've always seen stocks move higher in December. Uh, you anticipate more gains. I could I could do his imitation. <laughs> Brad, are you there? You there? There he is, <laughs> Brad. That's okay. Okay. So listen, sorry so, about that. That's okay. No, no, no. All good. Uh, so twenty seven hundred. You say by the end of the year, December's usually uh, historically a good month for equities. What's your thinking here? Well, I think there's a, there's a couple of things going on. First is the economy continues to improve. We saw consumer confidence levels come in right now at levels we haven't seen since t- the year two thousand. We're approaching the all-time highs. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. When people are confident, they spend. When they spend, the economy grows. We've got that, and we've got business investment. So the economy is looking to do very well over the next six months or so. Uh, Yeah, indeed. And and the tax cut here, of course, is also moving stocks, it seems to be, uh, the notion of a tax cut, uh, uh, the notion of a corporate tax cut, I should say, because it looks like the effect on individuals is pretty hard to to tell. The Congressional Budget Office says that people of lower tax rates actually, of lower incomes, actually see their taxes go up quite a bit. And and, uh, people in the upper middle class will also see uh, taxes uh, either unaffected or rising. Um, So I wonder, you know, what do you expect the economic impact to be and how the market might react? Uh, correspondingly or opposingly? Well, when you look at the way the market has actually been running up, despite all of the uncertainty around the tax bill, I think I would argue that the tax bill, in fact, only has upside potential. We might see a little bit of pullback if it doesn't pass, but nonetheless, it's rising on fundamentals. And, you know, with the economy getting better, we're going to see corporate earnings continue to do well. That's going to happen regardless of what happens with the tax cut. And we're going to see earnings very likely revised up, as we always do. So, in fact, it's going to be fundamentals, and the tax cut, if in fact we get it, could boost business sentiment and give us even more juice. So do you ever look at this market run since the 2009 low and just say, okay, something doesn't make sense here? Well, I'm on record as saying that at some point we're going to have a significant pullback with valuations where they are. You know, we've never gotten this high on a sustained basis. So, yeah, at some point the music is going to stop. But the question between high risk and immediate risk, you know, you can have high blood pressure and not walk around in fear of a heart attack until you feel the pains. We don't feel the pains, so it's likely we're going to keep walking ahead. So um, uh, part of this is that this climb has been kind of steady, uh, I think. We haven't seen giant runs on any given day, nor have we seen big sell-offs, of course. Um, what do you make of that sort of lack of volatility? It worries me. It's not a normal market. And again, this kind of low volatility is typical in the final stages of a run-up. You know, we saw this in the late 1990s. We saw this in the mid-2000s. This is consistent with people, at, with both consumers and business, feeling good and just continuing to move ahead, not really looking at the dangers. So, again, it's something we've seen before. People say it's unprecedented. It's not unprecedented at all. It's something that suggests that things are going to keep going well until they don't. What will make it them not go well? What's the thing? Well, when you look at it, there's a couple of different angles you can attack this from. 
The way I look at it, and I update this every month, is I look at changes in consumer confidence. When it drops by about 20 points, that's typically a risk signal. I look at changes in business confidence. When the ISM surveys go below 50, which means contraction, that's a real risk indicator. And the yield curve is absolutely significant, and that's actually getting close to the worry zone. But most important of all is job creation. When job creation actually drops below about a million a year, that's when you start to have real problems with everything. And we're not close to that yet, but we are starting to see the growth turn down. In fact, it's been doing it for a while. That's what I watch. So, um, and and do you keep an eye on VIX? Do you look do you look at that as an indication of volatility, or are you looking at other things to keep an eye on sort of what's changing? That's more of a symptom than a cause. Yeah, it's something to keep an eye on. But again, VIX bounces around an awful lot. It's not really useful as a reliable signal. Yeah, you know, I just it makes takes me back to you know, it's the economy, stupid. It works in politics, and it works certainly in the market. So if the fundamentals are there, but as you said, if you start to see some of those key turning points in consumer confidence, which we just saw coming off of Black Friday, Cyber Monday, they're out there spending. We did see that. Or if you start to see it in business confidence, when businesses start to retrench, they're not spending, they're not hiring. That's when you have to start get worried. That's a fundamental. Those are two fundamentals that are really key in terms of what happens in our economy in our business environment and ultimately in the uh, stock market. That's exactly right, Carol. I mean, you can think of, to put it in prosaic terms, you can think of the economy as the dog and the market as the tail. Okay? When the tail's wagging, that's probably a good sign that the dog's feeling pretty good. If the dog gets sick, you're not going to see a lot of tail wagging. Right now, the dog's still feeling good, so the tail's wagging. Move around. Motion creates the motion. I feel the earth move on the motion. You move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everybody. It is time for your Movers and Shakers on this Tuesday afternoon. Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. Let's kick it off with the S&P 500. 423 names in the index higher. So overly, uh, overly I should say, bullish sentiment uh, among the equity trade today. Uh, you heard Charlie with those numbers. Uh, more records on Wall Street. So anyway, 423 names in the S&P higher today. 81 lower, one unchanged. And uh, let me talk a little bit about... Hmm, I don't know where I want to go. Uh, Ulta is something that actually has caught my attention. I don't know why. It's just because I feel like, Corey, it keeps popping up on our movers and shakers list. Uh, Ulta Beauty up 5%, up more than 10 bucks today, $217.07 a share. Stock's still down about 15% so far in 2017. And uh, some stories out there uh, late uh, after the close today, Hartford Growth Opportunities Fund added, added Teradyne to its investments, exited Ulta Beauty. Would have thought maybe that might have put some pressure on the stock. Um, but then uh, the fund, which is led by a group of managers boosted its investment in Alphabet. So anyway, they were talking about some different investments. So I thought maybe Ulta would be lower, but it wasn't. Um, and I just, um, I think it's interesting because that stock kind of continually pops up on our movers and shakers. Did you see the new Thor movie? I did not. Ragnarok? No, I did. Fantastic. Funny movie. 
Okay. Who knew? Who knew? Thor Industries is not uh, run by a Norse god of thunder. And instead, it's run by a guy named uh, Peter Orthwine out of Elkhart, Indiana. The company makes uh, RV vehicles. Uh, RV vehicles, it's so redundant. They make recreation vehicles, RVs, uh, <laughs> camping vehicles, fifth wheel, traveler trailers, motorhomes, you name it. Reported very strong results uh, for the quarter. Stock was up 13% today to close uh, at, at uh, 154.37. It briefly hit 155.46, which is an all-time high for this, uh, not just a 52-week high, but uh, spiking straight up for the year. The stock uh, has risen 54%. But the suggestion uh, there that this was so strong, earnings per shares from continuing operation net sales, uh, uh, really strong in the quarter. Uh, the CEO, uh, Bob Martin, uh, I should say, I mentioned the chairman earlier, Bob Martin, the CEO, uh, said, quote, industry demand remains exceedingly strong and will continue to grow for the foreseeable future. Towable RV sales up 33% year over year. Motorized RV sales up 23% year over year. So uh, that has other uh, uh, stocks up as well. Uh, recreational vehicle manufacturers, uh, of the, which are about 10, all seeing a bid in today's trading. I'd love to see you in an RV. I just kind of would. All right, Dave, you're up. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Dave. Wilson, where are you? Wilson! Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? We're going for the price on Wilson. Open up the door, it's Dave! Who? Dave! Hey, Mr. Wilson! Dave Wilson's here with the stock of the day. And that would be Quinn Street. It's an online marketing company whose ticker is QNST. Now... Quinn Street went public back in February 2010, and over the years, it's been largely abandoned by shareholders as well as investors. Now, this is a stock that went public at $15. Last year, traded at $2.61, down 83% from the initial price. And along the way, the number of analysts covering the company, according to our data here at Bloomberg, fell to two from eight. Now there are three. Barrington Research's James Goss began following Quinn Street today. He assigned the stock an outperform rating, the firm's equivalent to buy. Uh, Barrington joined Stevens, Inc. in recommending the company. Now, Credit Suisse is still telling investors to sell. Nonetheless, the buyers had the upper hand today. Quinn Street rose to a a five-and-a-half-year high. The stock closed with a gain of almost 11% at $10.65. Still has a ways to go to get back to that $15 initial price, but at least it's moving in the right direction for the company's shareholders. It's one of those small caps that you like, Corey. Why not? Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.